Each episode of the Blind Alchemy podcast is designed to be helpful. Expect comedy. Do not expect consistency or sense to be made. I am Podbot. I was inspired by the Lion Goat podcast. Listen to that show. With this rendition of reality as we know it, we are all one, and there is nothing new under the sun that shines down here upon the island of mind, which is somewhere adrift in the sea of frequency that creates all of reality. You see, we are connected through this energy. Now, I would like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us here at the Blind Alchemy Podcast, where today we are discussing political Gnosticism, the manipulation of the markets, the systems. Is it alchemy? Is that a question? Is that the question we're asking today? With us is, once again, our favorite TikTok sensation, Lunchbox, and the ever-lovable Buck Johnson. How you doing, Buck? Doing great, Blind Alchemist. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate the compliment. I love you, too. Good to see you, Lunchbox. How's it going? I can see he's waving his fingers at the camera again, as usual. Today, we are going to be discussing the Gnosticism of politics, political Gnosticism. I have to clarify that. Okay. It's more about the Gnosticism of media. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you take front on this one, Lunchbox. You just lay it down how you want to lay it down. When I originally said something to you is before this whole war thing started. What I was referring to was your statement about, we know Biden sold our reserves to China. Because you said it so succinctly. I keep up with that kind of information. I keep up with global trade. Right. It matters. It doesn't really work that way. First off, you realize we don't have the fuel like in a warehouse. It's not in tanker. They just call it the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and I know that he gave it or sold a lot of it to China. Well, it's a rolling stock, and our portion is earmarked. Right. To clarify, I wanted to say it in a different way that sounds almost as bad, but I had to lay out how the whole thing works. We don't have this in a reserve anywhere. It's just like the fuel on the global market is earmarked as ours. Right. It's not in storage. The entire fuel supply cycle, the old stuff gets sold, new stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we have a certain amount that's earmarked for us. Now, we can't sell it. We don't sell it and get the money for it. We can release a certain amount 
to the global supply. We don't have any control of who buys it. But when it comes to our fuel hitting the global market, yes, China is like one of the biggest purchasers of our fuel supply. You know, we don't deal with Russia. <laughs> the other big one is India. That's it. You know, nobody else really buys fuel on that volume, right? So, yeah, he released more than any president has released in a long time. And our reserves dipped down to a level as low as it was in like the early 80s, like either 82 or 84. Yeah. But let me put that into perspective too. He only released 30 million barrels and that left us with 371 million left over. <laughs> it wasn't all of our reserves. It was less than 8%. <laughs> but it was a lot on the scale of what presidents have released in the past. Our levels did drop really low compared to what they've been, but it still wasn't that low. Now, I said all that to say this, the way that media reports stuff, we as the people who actually consume that news, that media, we have to be modern day Gnostics. We have to pick and choose what's the truth and try to figure out what the truth is. Yeah. Because we're just bombarded with crap. <laughs> right. And so are the journalists. So are the people that are trying to report this stuff. They're playing that same game at the same time we are because. Well, some of them are playing it. Big data and the ability to manipulate statistics to portray the story that you're trying to tell is fundamentally that entire game has changed in the last two decades. It's unbelievable how much power they have to describe a story in any way that they want to describe it. So do you know about Kashagi, the journalist? No, I do not. I have not heard of that. Okay, so this is the kind of shit that I pick up on because I read international news a lot. Kashagi was technically from Saudi Arabia, but he was a U.S. citizen because he kind of ran away from that place. He was one of those journalists and you know how they treat journalists over there. Somehow he got coaxed into the Saudi consulate in, I want to say in Turkey, and he never left. They never saw him leave. And it's kind of known now that he was murdered inside that building at the behest of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia right now. Okay. Jamal Ahmad Khashoggi was a Saudi journalist, dissident, author, columnist for Middle East Eye and the Washington Post, and a general manager and editor-in-chief of Al Arab News Channel, who was assassinated at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on the 2nd of October 2018 by agents of the Saudi government at the behest of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman, all Saud, colloquially known by his initials MBS, is Crown Prince and Prime Minister of Saudi Arabia. He also serves as the Chairman of the Council of Economic and Development Affairs and the Chairman of the Council of Political and Security Affairs. He's considered the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, being deemed as such even before his appointment as Prime Minister in 2022. Okay. I'll call him Prince Murder Baron <laughs> because of this little story. He had the dude killed. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia is like one of our allies. And we're just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> dude was technically a U.S. citizen. Yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about that. Yeah, because we're such good allies with Saudi Arabia. By the way, do you know Saudi Arabia will still crucify a body? 
I say crucify a body because they don't do it while you're alive, but after you're executed for your crimes, if they're horrible enough, like if you're a gay Christian, they will put your body on display, crucify it. Wow. Yeah, they still do that, our ally. Well, you know, they have lots of that oil stuff that you mentioned earlier, so we have to keep some of those allies around. It makes a better fuel. That's the fucked up thing. Is like when you add crucified blood to it, it burns better. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Crucifixion makes better oil. <laughs> yeah, we don't buy so much of it, but it's worth more. It's a sweet crude. Their oil is brown compared to our black stuff. Yeah, yeah. Our black stuff makes better diesel and kerosene, and their stuff makes better gas. That's absolutely true. That's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Regardless of the crucified blood, their oil is much better for gasoline production. I learned that working for a oil refiner. My in-laws run a fuel company. You mentioned that, yeah. They actually truck the fuel to the convenience stores. Fuel delivery, I guess you'd say. Yeah, the logistics piece of it. Right. Are these the same folks that own the uh, convenience stores? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. They did. They've sold them all now. <laughs> I guess that you sold your family to the dollars of another god. <laughs> right, you mentioned that. Did they move into logistics from that, or were they always in that logistics game? They were always in logistics. Growing up in this town, there was this huge truck stop, the big, brightly lit truck stop. Mm -hmm. It was just outside of town, about two miles towards exit number 68, and it was the TA truck stop. And they owned a bunch of land at that exit. One of the cousins owns a little gas station across the street that had a garage in it where he worked on cars. And they built a shop to work on trucks. And then they bought a bunch of trucks and started hauling fuel. And eventually he sold out of the truck stop and was just hauling fuel. And now I think he sold all that. And one of the only things he still does is he has a fleet fueling station that doesn't even have an attendant. It's just two gas pumps and three diesel pumps. One of those things where you have to have membership and it uses a microchip and you drive up and flash your badge and it allows you to fuel up if you're a trucker with that fleet program. Is that what you're talking about? Right. The people that fuel up there on the gas side are local ambulances. One of the local security companies has a contract with them to fuel all their cars there. Uh -huh. That's a cool way to have a uh, passive income, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it takes very little maintenance, and there's no human there because there's no actual cash or money changing hands at all. You know, it's just a fuel dispensary, and it's tallied later <laughs> and, and billed monthly. They don't have too many fuel bandits driving up with their little hacker chips running up. <laughs> Edward Furlong tricks on their gas tanks. Yeah, you've eliminated that. Anyways, you were saying that Jamal Khashoggi was a journalist in Saudi Arabia and he was assassinated by Mohammed bin Salman, the prince? Yeah. Or prime minister? Prince Murder Baron. <laughs> the views of the guest do not reflect the views of Blind Alchemy. The Blind Alchemist, Buck Johnson, Alchemy Incorporated, The Podbot, or Hairline Productions. Yeah, and we're just letting it slide. We don't care. Was that recent? Wasn't the whole September 11th thing with the two planes that crashed into the World Trade Center or the four planes or how many airplanes there were or, you know, giant missiles 
four giant piles of bombs in the basement or whatever it was. <laughs> whatever the method, when it happened. Weren't the terrorists actually from Saudi Arabia? And then we started the war with Iraq, and that was a huge... Oh, we started the war with Afghanistan. Well, we had already started the war with Afghanistan, and then we were like, oh, yeah, we need to make this public. Hey, good timing. <laughs> that was our response. But it was because the Saudi nationalists technically were part of the Taliban, which was like this rebel militia. Yes, non-country-specific. And... Saudi Arabia didn't really claim them as being anything official within their government. So I just remember there was a lot of, at least on my part, I was like, aren't we supposed to be at war with Saudi Arabia right now? Aren't they the guys that... that no. <laughs> can't have war with them. I know, that was my whole point. We signed a deal with them in World War II. For some reason, we were in the Persian Gulf instead of fighting Japan or Germany. We were... <laughs> We were signing papers. And the minute and the that happened, all the Saudi nationals, we were like, uh, we need to evacuate you from the country. If you could please step over to this uh, 737 that we've reserved specifically for you, just so you can fly out of the country right now. According to Wikipedia, 19 men affiliated with the Islamist jihadist organization Al-Qaeda were the hijackers in the September 11th attacks. They hailed from four countries, 15 of them were citizens of Saudi Arabia, two were from the United Arab Emirates, one was from Egypt, and one from Lebanon. Clandestine operations in Afghanistan were carried out by the CIA with the mission to remove Osama bin Laden throughout the 1990s. U.S. military actions against Afghanistan were taken in 1998 after U.S. embassy bombings were linked to bin Laden. After the Taliban repeatedly refused to surrender bin Laden and international sanctions were imposed on the Taliban in 1999, the U.S. declared war in Afghanistan on October 7, 2001. Operation Enduring Freedom is said to be a combat action against Al-Qaeda and their Taliban supporters in response to 9-11-2001, lasting until 2021. It was the longest war in the military history of the United States. U.S. military actions against Iraq were taken in 1990, 1991, War in Iraq on March 20, 2003, with Operation Iraqi Freedom, which lasted until 2011. After continued instability of the Iraqi government, civil war, and insurgency and bombings by the Islamic State, or ISIS, or ISI, or ISIL, or QSIS, or Al Qaeda separatists, the United States became re involved in 2014. At the time of this recording, the armed conflict is ongoing. Now we will take a break for some advertisements. Please support our sponsors. Just imagine this could be your advertisement. Please reach us at the blind alchemy podcast at gmail.com to provide sponsorship. And now back to the show. So this was something that I posted on Facebook and I want to say it was like four or five, maybe even six years ago, a long time ago, but because I read all this international news, I see where Netanyahu left Israel and went to meet with this prince, okay? Trump was in office at the time. I know that because Pompeo was the Secretary of State at the time, and he was there. He was also at this meeting, and I pointed this meeting out. I was like, 
there's some fuckery going on. <laughs> and within four days, I know it was right before Thanksgiving, the top nuclear Iranian scientist was assassinated and he was shot from a machine gun mounted in a minivan on the street that was actually targeted by a satellite <laughs> from freaking space. <laughs> 13 bullets killed that man and not a one of them hit his wife, which was in the passenger seat next to him in the same vehicle. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and not a one of them. No, not a one of them. <laughs> like, that's precision, baby. And, you know, Saudi Arabia and Israel don't exactly have extensive space programs. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that's why Pompeo was there. It was like, yeah, we can hook you up on some targeting. <laughs> the views of the guest do not reflect the views of Blind Alchemy. The Blind Alchemist, Buck Johnson, Alchemy Incorporated, The Podbot, or Hairline Productions. Yeah, there I, wasn't I, even a person. It was it was a gun and mounted inside an uh, empty minivan and targeted from space. There's not even a person to shoot back at. Might <laughs> have been some American tech involved in that, in the history of that. It's our allies. We help them out anyway. We don't care. Fuck it. Keep the war machine going. <laughs> War's profitable. War is very profitable, yeah. yeah. We've been playing a role in trying to manipulate who was in control over there. For at least a hundred years now, I would say. Well, I think it started with that signing of this contract around the time Israel was considered a state. Mm -hmm. At the end of World War II. That was when we started really having a political presence there. And then a military presence was soon to follow to secure our political presence there. <laughs> a few days ago, I posted on Facebook. How's that Iran-Contra thing working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> because it was under the Reagan administration when they sold a bunch of weapons to Hamas. <laughs> right. <laughs> Literally, to help them take their country back. And the whole time we're funneling that money to the Nicaragua-Contra thing. <laughs> It's all shady as fuck. Neither one of those countries give a shit about us anymore. <laughs> yeah, they both hate us. Yeah, tell me it's not a well-orchestrated play. Like, society and everything is it's well-orchestrated. You just see the patterns and notice, follow the money. That tells you everything, every time. <laughs> one of my favorite characters, which he's recently fallen out of favor with me. I found that at... The more I listen to him, I start to hate him again. <laughs> Russell Brandt. Oh, uh, yeah. Of course, he was the kook at first, but then he started saying a bunch of things that I really liked. And uh, one of those things was about the banker bashing. Yeah. And he said, when you have this economic recession where everybody loses loads and loads of money, who do you look to to blame? The people who made loads and loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably who took your money. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Isn't he getting me too'd right now or something? Yeah, but long before that, I figured out when the power shifted from Trump to Biden, I figured out that he was just going to attack whoever was in office. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Once the power shifted, then his aim shifted. <laughs> You're saying Russell Brand's aim shifted? Yes. Mm -hmm. When I first started following him, it was more or less like us versus the state, period. Mm -hmm. 
And then when Trump was in office, it was, you know, tearing down everything he did, which that was easy to do. And I'm laughing along with it because I didn't like the guy before he ran for office. But then as the power shifted, so did his aim. It's like he didn't care. He just targeted whoever was in charge. Now he makes it sound like the other guy's the good guy. <laughs> and I'm like, you just flip flop your views, you know? <laughs> I wonder if he's sort of like you. Is he an anti-establishment guy? And it just doesn't matter if he's interested in anarchy. Is it any sort of organization is the one to target? I thought so at first because he was against the voting. Like he said, he didn't vote. I don't vote because I don't think the system works. <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> the voting system's a bad idea or voting is a bad idea? The system is a bad idea. It's just set up wrong. Voting could work if it was properly executed, but the way it's regionalized is just not working on our national scale. Because of the Electoral College? Maybe. Or because of the fact that they're trying to use technology from the 40s to run voting in the 21st century? <laughs> yeah, it could be a lot of the confusion in the fighting afterwards. But I think a lot of it has to do with the media beforehand and all the legal actions afterwards. Mm -hmm. Everybody's suing everybody over everything. <laughs> it's so hard to keep up with. <laughs> I've often wondered if it's a play that's put on to placate the Democratic Republic. You pretend to give the people the power to make the elections, especially with the way that the Electoral College works, because it's almost like we have these representatives that we can vote into power that are supposed to represent the people's view. But it's always been that those people that can be elected are part of the aristocracy to a point that they're completely unreachable by the common man. No one can communicate with any of these people. You could never just call a Biden on the phone and have a telephone conversation with him because he's a millionaire. And all of these folks that are elected to any of these positions, except for local community council. That seems to be the one place where democracy might have some sort of actual sway or influence. Like voting might actually work at the local level. But the fact that we're supposed to elect these representatives that are supposed to represent our views, yet they're actually elected by this electoral college, which is a group of people that we did not vote for, that specifically do not represent our views and couldn't represent our views except for they're sort of representative of our views because they're picked from people that have the most common viewpoint of the area that they're supposed to represent theoretically from my entire state <laughs> yeah it's rather interesting that's why i have this idea we theoretically live in this democratic republic which is not a democracy it's a republic right it's a completely different thing right. it's supposed to be both yeah <laughs> but the idea is that if we put on this play and we sort of like give the people the idea that they have control then maybe they will not rebel and use their Second Amendment rights to overthrow the government quite as often as they would. But at the same time, can you really get 400 million people to participate in any sort of group activity? I mean, normally our elections, at least on a presidential level, the percentage of people that actually vote and actually pay attention and actually participate is so low, there's no way it could be representative of the public. What if... I said it's hard to get that many Americans to do it. <laughs> Modern Americans, yeah. I would completely agree with that. But 
other countries have a much better voter turnout than we do. <laughs> Especially if they're in the middle of a rebellion or some sort of government overturn, which was probably the case at the beginning of our electoral activities as well. You go back to the time when our government was first created, I imagine a lot more people participated if they could, but that's actually not true because most of them couldn't vote because they didn't own land. And back then, the only way you could vote was if you were a man that was white that owned land and slaves and stuff like that. <laughs> so. so voter turnout was really high <laughs> because it was only 11% of the country to begin with, and they were already in town. <laughs> Amongst the aristocracy, yeah. I don't know. I see it in this sort of surreal way because I don't agree with uh, the alchemist that it's in any way organized or, or orchestrated because I think that people are fundamentally, they just can't organize anything. We're all just completely discombobulated all the time, just running around doing whatever the fuck we want and nobody has any control of anything. But I do think that there are certain people that manipulate the market and manipulate Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But they don't know what they're doing. They're just grasping at straws as well, in my opinion. I have this love-hate relationship with Elon Musk, but he can post on Twitter a picture of his puppy in the frunk of his Tesla, and the price of Doge doubles. <laughs> just because it's the same fucking dog they use as the icon. <laughs> oh, that is interesting. Yeah, people manipulate the market all the freaking time, and it's sickening. So... There's this weird little thing I was saying earlier. One of the things that was kind of skimmed over in the whole UFO hearings, they weren't really about the government admitting that there were UFOs. It was about them presenting there was a concerted effort to keep the information from anybody that was trying to find it. And it was protected more by the Department of Defense and defense contractors more than the U.S. government, because even when the U.S. government tried to walk in, and here's the thing that I think was glazed over, AOC and Matt Getz worked together on that. Yes, they did. They crossed those party lines, and they worked together. Two of our new young crop worked together on the same project for the same goal. Wow, that's, that's shocking. Really overlooked there. <laughs> Because they are like polar fucking opposites, cats and dogs in any other congressional hearing. But when it comes to the UFOs, they kind of joined hands. And I thought that was really awesome. Yeah, that affects us all. Something extraterrestrial affects the whole system. Well, they didn't. So. That was the thing was they admitted it was non-human biologics, but that didn't mean it was not terrestrial. Right. That could be anything that wasn't human. It could be a blade of grass or a mosquito or the virus in the salt water. You know what I mean? It could have been anything. <laughs> There's really no telling whether it was from another planet or not. But the whole point of the hearings was to show that there was this effort amongst the Department of Defense and defense contractors to keep all this suppressed. Keep the information away from even the government itself. Even the U.S. government did not know what was going on behind those doors. <laughs> One of the things that I really like that AOC has done. So we're talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Yes. Okay. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez born October 13th, 1989, also known by her initials AOC, is an American politician and activist. 
She's the youngest woman ever to serve in the United States Congress. She served as the U.S. Representative for New York's 14th Congressional District in 2019 as a member of the Democratic Party. On June 26, 2018, Ocasio-Cortez drew national recognition when she won the Democratic Party's primary election for New York's 14th Congressional District. She defeated the Democratic Caucus Chair Joe Crowley, a 10-term incumbent, in what was widely seen as the biggest upset victory in the 2018 midterm election primaries. She was re-elected in the 2020 and 2022 elections. Yeah, she's new. She's warming on me. She's still inexperienced. I'll give her that. She's still kind of naive about things, but she has sworn off all investments. She is not going to invest in the stock market. She is going to put her money in the whole senator retirement fund and let it do its thing. She's not going to personally own, buy and sell stocks or any kind of investments. And I think that is kind of cool. I think that's a noble cause. If you can get all the other ones to do the same thing, that would be really awesome. Like I said, she's inexperienced. She hasn't figured out how everything works yet. And she's a bit naive about things, but she's learning. I wish we could get a promise of all our senators and shit to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Them making money off of stock market. This is not a Republican Democrat. Pelosi's like one of the worst fucking people doing this shit. (laughs) Not my husband did it. Yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) Your husband made the investment. You made the laws. I got you. I got you. Well orchestrated, isn't it? I'll tell you another one that I like. You know, you were talking about how there's a loss of contact between that aristocracy and the common man, right? Yes. Do you know who Katie Porter is? Now we will take a break for some advertisements. Please support our sponsors. Just imagine this could be your advertisement. Please reach us at the blind alchemy podcast at gmail.com to provide sponsorship and now back to the show katie porter again i am dissociated from all things so i don't really pay attention i'm the worst person to ask honestly Catherine moore porter born january 3rd 1974 is an american political law professor and lawyer who is the u.s representative from california's 47th congressional district since 2023 previously representing the 45th Congressional District from 2019 to 2023. He was the first Democrat to be elected to represent the 45th District, covering much of the South Central Orange County, including Irvine, Tustin, and Lake Forest, along with large portions of Anaheim and Laguna, Nigel, whatever. Porter was re-elected in 2022 in the newly redistricted 47th Congressional District. All right. She is on the Senate Oversight Committees. Uh-huh. And she's the lady that pops up with the whiteboard and starts <laughs> mathing it out right in front of you. Why did you raise the price of this drug from 217 to 712? Uh-huh. <laughs> the drug didn't get any better. It didn't get any harder to make. <laughs> like, y'all just got better at making money. <laughs> right, right. She points out where if he didn't raise the price of the drug, he wouldn't have got his bonus. <laughs> So, like, that's the only reason they raised the price of the drug so he could meet the profit quota so he could get his bonus. <laughs> so, meanwhile, the price of this cancer drug is tripled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's the lady that whips out the whiteboard and starts putting them really to task. 
why did you do this? And they're saying, oh, my compensation package is uh, comparable to others in the field. The other guy does it too is not an excuse. That's right. That's right. <laughs> He's like, uh, why are you questioning the way capitalism works? We rigged this game a long time ago. Remember when we created the FDA? That was a part of the deal, right? Capitalism. She's one of the few people. She does the thing with one of the bank presidents. I want to say it's Goldman Sachs. She goes down the ad of what they pay their tellers and like what it costs to be a single mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She's like, there's no way that I can pay my bills on $16 an hour. Like it's decent living no <laughs> right, right. i can't like pay rent and have a vehicle and a phone and buy food and still pay for child care for my kids <laughs> no not happening <laughs> what do you suggest that do take out a line of credit to your bank <laughs> oh, totally totally definitely please we'll sign you up have you considered private investment we have much higher interest rates <laughs> right that's one of the reasons why I do still invest in crypto is like they can't really touch it right now. <laughs> that is the glory of the story of crypto. That is the promise that crypto originally came out with. And it's not that the technology has changed. That promise could still exist. It's just that once all the other coins opened up and people started playing the game, once people realized how they could manipulate other people by giving them this empty promise of free money, they were like, oh, it's the new credit card. We can play this game too. And if we can get these people to put their money into a technology that they can't possibly fundamentally understand, and we can hide it behind encryption that we control the keys to, we can just literally steal their money and they won't know how we did it. <laughs> and they'll think that their money's safe. Until they figured out how San Bankman Free did it. <laughs> oh man, it was such a good ruse. And the thing is, is that ruse will never go away now. It's just a, it's a new common ruse. But it doesn't break the fundamental principle of what crypto is or what crypto could be. I agree with you. Having a non-centralized banking system that's controlled by the people for the people, created by the people, I think that that, it's a very novel, interesting idea. Bitcoin was designed in a completely different way than most modern cryptocurrency is designed. It was right. designed in a fundamentally different way, which forces it to only increase in value over time, but also it has an end to it. At some point, it's going to reach a level to where it can't be further mined and it can't increase in value after a certain point. The finite supply. But the value, just like the value in anything else, it's inherent in the mindset of the people who own the material, right? Right. Why do diamonds have any kind of value? Well, at a time a long time ago, they were rare and hard to produce. So there was an inherent value in them simply because they had some properties that other matter doesn't have. It's the same reason. I've said that about gold. Gold has an inherent value as an element because it conducts electricity really, really well. It's one of the most malleable of metals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can beat it into a super thin sheet. So it has a bunch of properties that make it valuable without a dollar sign on it, you know? <laughs> True. And it always will. It always will. The most 
valuable metals in the world right now are metals many of us haven't ever even heard of because they're mined in such small quantities and they're located in such niche industries that most people don't really realize that every cell phone can't be created without these very rare metals that have this insanely high value because they're extremely rare and very hard to mine. And at some point, we'll run out of them and everyone will go through the cell phone crisis. It'll become the next energy crisis will be the microchip and cell phone crisis that we're all going to go through here in about 10 years where we're just like, holy shit, we can't make any more of these things. What are we going to do with all our AIs now? <laughs> well, I still invest in two currencies. There's, I really only play with two. Um, I invest in Ether, the Ethereum. That is something that everything else is built on. A lot of coins are built on the Ethereum chain. A lot of projects operate on the Ethereum chain. Most of your NFT stuff operates off of the Ethereum chain. So I still invest in that. The other one that I invest in still is Dogecoin because it's the only one that actually got used as a freaking currency. I know some other ones could have been, but nothing did it on the scale that Dogecoin did. You could buy fucking basketball tickets for Dogecoin. Yeah. <laughs> it got used as an actual currency. So that's the other one that I still kind of invest in. Well, if you can, move your coin to your own personal server and do regular backups, have multiple clones of that drive, and write your key down on paper you can't clone it <laughs> you can cold store it but you can't clone a cold storage so well what i'm suggesting is that if your coin is on a marketplace that someone else owns the encryption keys too then your liability is high some of it is and some of it is not i split it because some of it i actually use on a weekly basis right right no, that's cool Coinbase, you can actually buy the dips on the Dogecoin, and then when it goes back up, I can spend it as Dogecoin at a snack machine, Coke machine. Mm -hmm. I can just swipe my Coinbase card and spend my Dogecoin just like it was money. <laughs> but I never have more than like 40 bucks on there. You know what yeah. I mean? That's okay, not... that's good. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> just realize you're playing with minotaurs and unicorns. If you expect them to exist in the future, they may not. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I read about the Doge fad and I jumped on it when it was like six and a half cents and I saw it go to 70 something cents. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it slipped not very far before I sold half of it. And that more than paid me back Brilliant. that's the way to play yeah <laughs> and then i turned around and bought the little sheba thing because everybody was talking about it and i bought it when it had six zeros and sold it when it had five zeros <laughs> like i watched it go 10 times Good. and uh made a bunch more money and that's when i started buying my stuff and parking it you know <laughs> like cold wallet storage cold wallet storage and then i kept a little bit out and did the projects like liquidity pools and stuff like that and lost a bundle there <laughs> when i figured out what that was about you're just helping them manipulate the market and you're losing the whole time so yeah i found out what to get into and what not to get into i've got stuff that's staked my ethereum is staked so it's making interest i had some of it wrapped it was tied up until they went switched from ethereum to ethereum 2 that took place earlier this year so that stuff became unwrapped and that's when i turned around and staked it wow nice jargon drop i have no, <laughs> no idea what you're talking about but the words sound awesome man <laughs> so ethereum switched their system and they were switching it from what they called ethereum one to ethereum two in doing so there has to be 
enough of both of them that are wrapped together that they can make that shift of wealth without it disrupting the market. Enough of it has to be together. And so people were pledging it to wrap it. And in doing so, you got a little bit of a return in Ethereum too, when it made the switch over. And this means to park it in a digital escrow or a place where it couldn't be spent for a certain amount of time. Well, that's what staking is. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened after that. I turned around and staked it, which is I'm promising that I'm not going to touch it until the end of the year, right? And that assures them that they have that much to play with mm -hmm. when they're trying to make the transactions happen. You bought an Ethereum bond. The way you give your money to the bank and they use that money to make loans and stuff and do their banking operations, that's what you're doing essentially is you're promising that exchange that they can use your Ethereum to resolve their transactions for a certain period of time, which for me, it was at the end of the year. You put it into like a money market account. <laughs> we just call it staking it and I get 4% return. That's cool. Yeah. So way more than a savings account. <laughs> yeah. But comparable to the money market account. Your return is in Ethereum too. So it depends on the price of the coin. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So if, if Ethereum increases... 30%, do you still only get 4%? Well, I'll get my 4% in Ethereum, though, because that's what I've staked. I didn't I stake a dollar amount. I staked an amount of Ethereum. So yeah. the amount of my Ethereum went up 4%. If the value of Ethereum went up 30%, then that's that much more. You own 4% more of the extra 30% value. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't played with that stuff just because... When I first heard about it and realized what it was, I was like, oh, this is interesting. This could potentially be a really cool thing. And then when I saw what immediately happened, which I probably should have been able to predict, but I didn't at all predict, was that 9,000 different coins would come out immediately. <laughs> when I saw that happen, I was like, ah, uh, God damn it. We did the same thing with this that we do with everything. <laughs> I also own a ridiculous amount and I say it's a ridiculous amount. It's not even really that much dollars. It's like $22 worth or something yeah. of this coin that's called Dogelon Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Where they like try to put it all together and it's supposed to be the first galactic cryptocurrency. <laughs> oh. oh, galactic cryptocurrency. So I own like 12 million of those. <laughs> what is the idea that the different bitchains are somehow accessible by each other? How does that work? Or are they all three coins that come from the same bitchain? Oh, no, it's like a completely different coin. <laughs> it's just a single all by itself. It's just, it was a, it was a meme coin somebody made as a fun project. Uh-huh. I gave them 20 bucks, you know? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> just so I could own like 12 million of something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> I had set up this uh, miner when Bitcoin first came out, and I actually mined 60% of the Bitcoin, but I lost access to that hard drive when that hard drive died on me, and so I was so pissed when I realized that I'd lost $20,000. Because <laughs> this was back in the day when there was only 500 Bitcoins, you know, so... I, I can remember sitting in my boss's driveway talking to him about Bitcoin. And at the time, it had just hit about $4,000. Uh -huh. And then like a year later, it was at about ten. And I remember saying something to him about it. And then years after I don't work for him anymore, it's hitting 67 or something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was just a mad run. 
the commercial fell off and the money ran out and people started calling the bluffs and the money wasn't there anymore. <laughs> they done spin it on hookers and blow. Oh, well, man. that's true, but it was also a shell game. There is real crypto, but a lot of that equity was lost in the sort of fake crypto stuff that was not actually crypto. It's called crypto because it is built on bitchain technology, but it's not the same thing they were playing this game of oh we want to be able to manipulate this like we can manipulate money in the market no that's fundamentally different than what bitchain is locked it's locked in position you can't manipulate you can't move it around and so the idea of having this material that you can easily transact on these exchanges and you know sell a million of these right now and then buy back two million a second later that fundamentally won't work with the concept of the bit chain because the bit chain requires this complex computation in order to make changes to it now we will take a break for some advertisements please support our sponsors just imagine this could be your advertisement Please reach us at the blind alchemy podcast at gmail.com to provide sponsorship. And now back to the show. So they're selling the idea. It's sort of like the NFT idea. That's what Ethereum was fixing was how long that took. <laughs> the complexity of that company. While you were talking about the uh, cryptocurrency, I don't know why, but I thought about the Council of Nine. Does anybody know what the Council of Nine is? Tell us about the Council of Nine. Well, it's some kind of like interdimensional being council of people <laughs> yeah, that have been channeled. I thought that was a Council of Twelve. Is this related to the Greek mythology Council of Nine when Prometheus gave fire to mankind and furating Zeus? Yeah, it's the same intergalactic beings that are referred to. Yeah, that's that Council To nine. punish mankind. Zeus and eight other deities gathered to form the Council of Nine. The council members were Aphrodite, Apollo, Athena, Demeter, Hephaestus, Hera, Hermes, Poseidon, and Zeus. And they created Pandora's box. No, no, not that one. Probably. They created Pandora's? Those assholes. <laughs> Can't have nothing. See, that's like God giving us stuff and then punishing us. Well, I think the asshole bit is putting Pandora in the box, right? Well, giving man the ability to... Fuck himself with it. <laughs> I don't believe Pandora was actually in the box. I was just making it. You know, like, here's knowledge. Don't fucking eat that tree, but there it is. <laughs> well, there you go. Is it the same story? Now, there's a Gnostic question for you. Is the story of Pandora's box the same as the story of Eve in the garden eating the apple? Was Eve eating the apple just a rehashing of the story of the opening of Pandora's box? Probably. <laughs> these stories get all muddled and they just you know write what looks good to them what suits their narrative we don't want those people anymore so we're not going to write that part but <laughs> yeah yeah god gave us this stuff and then punished us for it <laughs> it was a trick yeah i mean if you think about it it is a priceless gift that's given by the god it wasn't given to mankind it was given to epimetheus which was the brother of prometheus he was a titan, so he wasn't really like the representative of mankind, but it does involve a woman or a female, Pandora, and it does involve her curiosity overwhelming her and her opening this box which contains this 
knowledge which will eventually bring down the entire future. And they knew what they were doing when they put it in the box. Yeah, that's the trick, right? <laughs> God knew what he was doing when he created the apple, right? If he was the creator of all the things. It's a trick. It's it's deceptive. It's trickery. <laughs> it's not how you treat your creations. <laughs> Why put the curiosity into the cat if you know the cat's just gonna make the curiosity blow up in its face and take one of its nine lives something to do morbid comedy thing <laughs> they're so masochistic about it you know <laughs> or sadistic okay yeah there you go sadistic they're sadistic about it man <laughs> a law of one that's what it is law of one raw channelings you know anything about that in like 70s or 80s i uh sat down some channeler channeled raw of uh, the soul collective i guess and they came out with this whole law one thing man <laughs> that's, that's in a nutshell do you know who sun Ra is sun Ra? yeah i guess not he was like this jazz uh conductor yeah. musician amazing and it was a lot of uh galactic stuff i guess <laughs> you could say <laughs> interdimensional stuff mm -hmm. kind of float a lot i think he was actually thought he was from the planet Saturn or one of its moons or something. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's, it's, he, he's kind of out there, but it was some wild jazz music too to go along with. <laughs> you know what? I think I may have actually heard of it now that you've- Yeah, there's a documentary about him. I've watched it. He's really experimental. Did all this cool stuff with uh, beats and drums. He wasn't necessarily a drummer, but his music had a very interesting uh, polyrhythmic stuff going on in it. Every song I write tells a story. A story that humanity needs to know about. In my music, I speak of unknown things, impossible things, ancient things, potential things. German Kuhlblant, born May 22, 1914, died May 30, 1993, was an American jazz composer, band leader, piano and synthesizer player, and poet known for his experimental music, cosmic philosophy, prolific output, and theatrical performances. For much of his career, Rallet and Ensemble named the orchestra, which had an ever-changing name and lineup. Born and raised in Alabama, Blunt left college because, he claimed, he had a visionary experience that had a major, long-term influence on him. In 1936 or 1937, in the midst of deep religious concentration, Sun Ra claimed that a bright light appeared around him, and, recounted the experience as, my whole body changed into something else. I could see through myself, and I went up. I wasn't in human form. I landed on a planet that I identified as Saturn. They teleported me and I was down on stage with them. They wanted to talk with me. They had one little antenna on each ear, a little antenna over each eye. They talked to me. They told me to stop because there was going to be great trouble in schools. The world was going into complete chaos. I would speak, and the world would listen. That's what they told me. Blunt became involved in the Chicago jazz scene during the late 1940s. He soon abandoned his birth name, taking the name Lasani Ra, shortened to Sun Ra, after Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun. A pioneer of Afrofuturism is widely eclectic and avant-garde music echoed the entire history of jazz, from ragtime and early New Orleans hot jazz, to swing music, bebop, 
free jazz and fusion. His compositions ranged from keyboard solos to works for big bands of over 30 musicians, along with electronic excursions, songs, chants, percussion pieces, and anthems. The mastery is endless. It never repeats itself. Why should it? I have this depth of musical knowledge just about the different people. I'm not very good at it, but uh, I know the people. <laughs> What's your point about the Council of Nine? Well, I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Before the raw channeling, there was another channeling, and they were supposed to be in contact with the Council of Nine. Now, sitting on some of these sessions is Gene Roddenberry, you know, Star Trek creator. True story, apparently. Wait, he was on the Council of Nine? No, no. <laughs> sitting in on the... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> he was sitting in on the channeling sessions, and, and he took... It's Gene Roddenberry's news. <laughs> yeah, it's Gene Roddenberry. Go ahead. I keep interrupting. So what I'm wondering is, since we're on the topic of uh, manipulating markets and whatnot, what do you think about television as a manipulation tool? Television was a crazy, amazing manipulation tool. I think it was ideologically created as a communication medium. I think that, much like most of the communication mediums created in the 20th century, it was created out of a place of scientific discovery and naivety. I think it was this originally really neat idea, like the telephone or radio. All of these things really are using the same fundamental technology. They're just using it in a slightly different way. But, I mean, it was amazing. It still is amazing. It's the miracle of miracles, right? It's this amazing thing. The perfect distraction that involves most of our perceptory senses that we use as our primary forms of survival. I think it was, and still is. Now I think it's moved to cell phones and social media as our primary manipulation. Mm -hmm. But I think that when you had 40 million people watching the same channel and you could make 40 million people watch the same commercial because there was no way to record it or fast forward it or rewind it. It was turned into one of the greatest manipulatory mediums of all time. I think that's changed now to ad-based notifications on our telephones and our social media. But it goes back a lot further than just television. Radio, sure. Even before that, even before technology, when you're talking about plays in a theater, all the way back to the time of the Gnostics, the plays were critical of the upper class sometimes. So the propaganda was there. The media delivery was still there, even without the technology. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Look at stuff that Shakespeare wrote and how it was politically motivated. Mm. So yeah, we've seen it all along, long before the technology put it in our homes and then later put it in our hands. <laughs> um, right into our brains is next. Yeah, it's always been there. The other story that I was thinking about when y'all started down this about manipulation, you mentioned diamonds earlier and their worth. Have you ever heard about how De Beers made it to where it was the norm, the tradition, all of a sudden to have a diamond on your engagement right, ring? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Up until films... <laughs> 
it wasn't really that big a deal. But then all of a sudden, right. everybody that was on film or television always had a solitaire. Yeah, and in fact, it was <laughs> completely the opposite. The father of the bride owed the groom of giant yeah. valuable presents yeah. for taking his daughter from him instead of the other way around. 30 yeah. shekels and a goat, motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> He's with two goats. But that did completely change with the beers. Was that in between World War One and World War Two, or just after World War Two, when they created Christmas and they created Coca-Cola Santa Claus <laughs> and they created the diamond engagement ring? It was the 30s. It was between World War One and Two is when Miracle on 34th Street happened and all of a sudden Santa Claus was a commercial idea instead of this crazy Krampus elf that would <laughs> beat the naughty children. Now, all of a sudden, he only brings presents. Uh -huh. yeah. Even if you're bad, you're still going to get a present. It may just be cold, but you're still going to get something. I think that would be a very <laughs> interesting book to write about how much American society changed between the 20s and the 60s and how that was all completely manipulated by commercials and television and radio and, like, the time changing, all of these things are things that are products of that time. Santa Claus is the worst thing ever to me, though. Santa Claus? Yes. He's worse than the elf on the shelf? I mean, the elf on the shelf's pretty bad. <laughs> At a time when you're supposed to be teaching your kids right from wrong, you're lying to them. You're just, <laughs> and that's just fucked up. <laughs> so the tooth fairy falls into the same boat, right? The Easter all Bunny. of them, all of them. But Santa Claus is the one that gets the most ire because he's the most commercialized. He's the one that's used to sell everything and suck up our money. We have dedicated Christmas funds, <laughs> a whole other savings account just to take care of that one fucking holiday. Yeah, right. I don't like what it's turned into. I completely wholeheartedly agree with you. It's become such an expense. Yeah. I think the idea of a nice grandfather, uncle, that comes around once a year to just give you something out of the kindness of his heart, I think that's a cool idea, though. You know why Chinese kids don't believe in Santa Claus? Because they make the toys? Because they make the toys. <laughs> <laughs> They're Santa's elves. They should definitely believe it. Like they they fucking know who makes the toys. <laughs> <laughs> And met quota today, 2,700 of them motherfuckers. <laughs> As one of those toys, I must apologize for this horribly culturally insensitive joke. Please tune into the next episode to hear the rest of the conversation. Thank you very much for being here with us. I'm your host your guest on the quest as we float through the sea of frequency that we call reality. Love you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, please hit us up on every social platform you can find. Be safe out there. Come back and talk to me, all right? We would love to receive your feedback and your questions for advice. Please email us or send us a voicemail. Our address is theblindalchemypodcast at gmail.com. Like, review, subscribe, and contact us on Facebook and YouTube at The Blind Alchemy Podcast. All one word. Please subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player. We are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm slash The Blind Alchemy Podcast. Please tell all your friends, enemies, and any strangers to listen to our podcast. This will help us bring joy to everyone. Please see the episode notes for full attribution.
Text-to-speech services were provided by FreeTTS.com and ReadLoud.net. Audio clip content located on YouTube.com. Information was provided by Wikipedia. We would like to extend a special thank you to the world's greatest musicians, sound designers, and engineers at Hairline Productions for their help with the composition, performance, editing, production, and recording of both the original music and today's show. Please like their content on SoundCloud.